Father, thank you that you have brought us here this morning. Thank you for all your blessings. And we ask that you would help us attend to your word, uh, help us to have clear minds and eager hearts uh, to hear what you have to say. Help me, Lord, as I preach, so that uh, your word will uh, be made clear by uh, the exposition of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, one evening, as his crucifixion was drawing near, uh, Jesus uh, went to dinner at, at Martha and, and Mary's house. Lazarus, their brother, was there, reclining next to Jesus at the table. Uh, this was maybe six months after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Word of that miracle had, had by this time circulated all through, through Jerusalem, which, which was an easy walk from Bethany, which is where Martha and Mary and Lazarus live. So everyone knows about what has happened to Lazarus. Lazarus. While, they're, while they're eating, in comes Mary. She got an alabaster jar containing a pound of, of perfumed oil made from nard. It's, it's incredibly rare stuff, very expensive, it's imported from, from India. It's hard to get your hands on. And she walks in, she has that jar. She doesn't say anything, but she breaks open the top. That's how you'd open it. She breaks open the top, and the fragrance, John tells us in his account, the fragrance filled the whole room. Everyone, everyone there knows what they're smelling. And before anyone could, could stop her, she just pours this oil over Jesus' head, and then she gets down on her knees, and she pours, she empties the rest of it on, on his feet, and then she wipes his feet with her, with her hair. Now, the people sitting in the room, besides Jesus and Mary, the disciples, Martha, Lazarus, the other guests, they apparently, according to Mark's account, sit in stunned silence. They are thinking to themselves, though. They're thinking things, what, what on, why, why did she do this? What was she thinking? What on earth? Why would she do that? They're, they're indignant, Mark, Mark says. And there's a reason for that, because that nard is worth, the pound of it is worth, 300 denarii. Now, one denarii, only one, is one day's wages for a laborer. So the oil that she poured out, the pound of oil that she poured out, was equivalent to $30,000 that she just poured over his head and his feet. So they're sitting there. She pours this vastly expensive oil on him. And you know, G Judas, of course, is the first one to do, to do the math. And so he, he speaks, uh, why, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Of course, Judas, Judas doesn't care for the poor. He, he cares about the 300 denarii dripping down Jesus' beard and onto the floor. That's what he cares about. He's the treasurer, and he's been siphoning off money. He's been skinning, skimming money off the top. And so, so for him, this represents a real personal loss of, of income. Uh, but, but he knows the others. He knows they care about the poor. He knows 
Jesus cares about the poor. So G Judas decides to vent his anger by pretending to be an advocate for, for the downtrodden. And, and so he says what he says. Now, the first time I read this account, maybe you were the same way, the same way as, as I was, I, I knew Judas was a bad guy, so I wasn't totally siding with him. But I, I thought to myself, you know, Judas has a point. That's $30,000 that is just gone, and she could have, they could have sold that. He's, he's right. They could have fed a lot of people with that money. But then Jesus speaks. This is from Mark's account of it. Uh, Leave her alone, he says. She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you'll not always have me. Now, that still might leave you thinking, well, what's, what's, what's beautiful about throwing or pouring, I guess, pouring away uh, $30,000? Well, that oil was, was probably the most precious thing that Mary owns. Uh, she has Yahweh in her house. She has the, the author of life sitting at her table with her, with her family. Her brother is there eating at the table with Jesus because Jesus raised him from the dead and, and gave him back to her. When God, who has saved your soul and gives your brother back to you from the dead, comes to your house, what are you going to do? Just you know, fix some sandwiches and some soda? What, what, what are you going to do? Well, you pour out the best you have. Abraham, when Yahweh visited Abraham with two angels, they show up and he sees them in the distance and he runs out as fast as he can and he bows down to them and he begs them to stay and have something to eat and he runs and has his servant kill the fatted calf and then he attends them while, uh, while they're eating. And all of this is because Abraham saw and knew his guests. And so does Mary. And, and I think had the others in that room seen as clearly as Mary saw Nobody would be as, as upset as they, as they are. And yet still, what about the poor? Jesus, in his answer to Judas, loosely quote, quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. If you want to turn there, you can. You don't have to. But he quoted from Deuteronomy 15, verse 11. And, there, and when you go there, if you do, you'll read God saying, there will never cease to be the poor in the land. You'll always have the poor among you. Now, if you do go back and read chapter 15, you'll notice something odd. Because before saying, uh, there will never cease to be poor in the land, in verse 11, God promises in verse 4, there will be no poor among you. And that seems like a like a contra contradiction. How, did, how can those two things be true? And it seems like a contradiction until you read on, uh, beginning at the second half of verse 4. I'll just read it to you. Uh, For the Lord will bless you in the land he's giving to you if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. You see, there's, there's an if there. There will be no poor in your land if you strictly obey the voice of the Lord. And we all know how that goes as far as 
uh, obedience. Uh, so, so there will never cease to be poor in the land because Israel never strictly obeys the voice of the Lord. And when Jesus says, you'll always have poor among you, he's not saying, hey, don't worry about the poor. They're always there. He's, re he's, he's repeating the indictment of Deuteronomy 15. You always have poor with you because Israel doesn't obey God's voice, especially, I think this might have been the under, undercurrent, especially Judas here, who's stealing from the pot of money that we use to help the poor. Now, in Deuteronomy 15, God wasn't saying, um, if you obey me, no one will ever come on hard times and uh, no, no one will ever fall into a pit, a financial pit they can't get themselves out of. But he is saying, I will so pour out my, uh, my blessings. I'll be so abundant in blessing you that those who do fall on hard times can easily be helped by the rest. Uh, in verses 7 through 8 in chapter 15 of Deuteronomy, he says, if one of your brothers should become poor, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. You shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever that might be. That way, if that's followed strictly, there'll be no poor among you. Now, if you read through your Old Testament, if you go home and spend the week doing that, you're going to find that there's no command less strictly obeyed than that one. Except maybe the commandment to have no other gods before Yahweh. That one also is very loosely followed. In fact, the two violations of those two commands go together. Idolatry and tight-fistedness, those go together. Think about it. Uh, Baal, Asherah, Molech, Zeus, Mars... They don't care whether you help the poor. They're demons. They want, they want blood, not compassion. They don't care. Uh, you give the demons a, a bustle of wheat, a, a pig, a cow, a baby. You keep the, baby, the, the demons sat, satiated, and they keep you prosperous. That's how idolatry works. But the poor, why waste a goat on them or a pig on them, or they can't give you anything. That's how idolatry works. The, the, the more you're devoted to spending time, money, strength for whatever idol or idols you serve, pleasure, success, power, popularity, the less money, time, strength you have for anyone else, Whatever jars of nard you might have, you're not selling them and giving them to the poor, and you're definitely not, definitely not breaking them open and pouring them over Jesus' head. Your idols are too hungry for that. That's why, in fact, the poor have always been with us everywhere and in every time, not just in Israel. Since the beginning, we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord since we took that fruit way back in the beginning. We've set ourselves up as our own gods. And so we haven't served him or helped the poor. And it's, it's not like there's not enough. Even on a sin-cursed earth, 
There's more than enough for everyone to have enough to eat and to drink and to have, and to have a place to live. Uh, overpopulation is a demonic myth that's designed to either get you to kill your babies in the womb or not have them in the first place. God creates every baby in every mother's womb. And so that means there's never too many of them. There's just as many as God wants. But there are reasons why we still have poor among us, and they're all related to sin. Sometimes it's because some who can work decide not to work. Corrupt governments enrich themselves while food rots. But I think more, more directly, more personally maybe, I really love me, and I've got a mortgage and I've got kids in school. And I've got retirement coming down in about 20 years, and my 401k just lost a lot of money. And I really enjoy this thing and that thing. So I rationalize shutting my hand. And so this morning's text in Acts chapter 4 cuts deep for me. Maybe it does for you as well. But it does more than that, I hope. And I hope we'll see it does more than just cut. Uh, if you are in Deuteronomy, turn back now to Acts, and let's, let's look at verse 32 there. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and uh, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The, the misreadings of this particular passage are legion. You can very easily get tripped up here. This isn't a, a proto Marxist commune, that's not, not what's happening. Read through into chapter 5, and you see that even at this early stage, Christians continued to own things. Uh, the words for selling property that you see down in verse 34 indicate that that happened gradually as needs arose, not all at once. So it wasn't, uh, to be a Christian, you must give all of your possessions to the apostles. That wasn't the standing rule. But it does seem from this description that when, when, when someone said, I'm hungry and I can't afford to, to buy something to eat, nobody said, well, that's your problem. Maybe you should do something about that. It, it seems like everyone said, well, well whatever you need, I, I have it, I'll give it. If I have it, I'll give it to you. There's no force or coercion here. You don't get the wrong idea. The apostles aren't going around confiscating people's stuff and redistributing it. Uh, this isn't a taxation model. We shouldn't think of this as public policy. All of this is, is voluntary. The motivation is internal, not, not external. Look at the, what it says. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now, for us, when we say the word heart, we, we mean feelings or emotions, but for them, the heart is the seat of the, of the self, of the, of the person. It's your will, your emotions, everything that makes up you is your heart. It's you. And then the soul is the, the faculty that enlivens you, that gives you life, that is your life force. There are over 12,000 believers in Jerusalem at this time, and Luke says they're joined as one body with one heart and one soul. Some of that language sounds a little like the language you'd use for marriage, and that's not incidental. 
When, when God put Adam to sleep and formed Eve from his side, and then he joined them together as one in marriage, Adam's body, his side, the part taken from him, also became his bride. And God did that, Paul says in Ephesians 5, so that every marriage would depict the union between Christ and his church. And so when God gave you new birth, and he joins you to Jesus by faith, uh, you also were joined to his bride, his, the church, which is also Jesus' body. Jesus' life right now courses through you. In him, you're joined to everyone else who believes as, you, as if you have one heart and, and one soul. Now, all that's very new. There was nothing like this before Pentecost. It's very new. There's never been anything like it. Every me in the church is bound to every other me in the church in a, in a spiritual union. So much so that when your sister or your brother is hungry or in pain, the whole body feels it in some way. Nobody experiences that in some way. Uh, have you ever broken the, the, your little toe, the, little, the smallest little appendage you have? Um, if you were stubbed it on something walking through a doorway, it's only a little small little toe. It's very tiny, but that hurts. Your whole body resonates with, with pain when you do that because you're all, you're interconnected with yourself. Same thing here. You, you can try really hard to ignore that pain, but that doesn't make it go away, especially if you've broken some bones. Now, uh, people say that Acts chapter 4 was a short-term, ill-conceived setup. It didn't work, they say, and so yeah, there, there's no more of it. Well, if, if people mean by that sin didn't go away and that Christians can really foul up a good thing, yeah, that's, I guess that can be somewhat right. Chapter 5 will show that sin didn't go away and, and Christians can foul up a good thing. But I think the essence of what Acts 4 depicts has not gone away. That could only happen if believers cease to be one with Jesus and one with each other. And that can't ever happen. The, the, the free giving that you see reflected here, the free generosity, that, yes, that ebbs and flows from age to age. And maybe sometimes it even seems to disappear. Churches can try really hard to ignore pain in the body, but it never disappears. What we're seeing here never disappears. And I, I, when someone here, a good shepherd, is, is in need, invariably, those who know about it do not consider their own stuff to be their own. They give it. I've been here for 20 years, and it's, I've never seen that fail. It happens more than you probably know, because a lot of it's done in secret. When a parishioner comes to me and says, I've lost my job and I can't pay, I can't pay for rent, uh, you have given me the resources to say to that person, well, the church can help you out. I, I, I have no doubt, because you believe in Jesus and he's living in you, his life is coursing to you, that you know in your heart and soul that your stuff is not just yours. That it comes from Jesus. And so you'll use it for Jesus.
That's why when, when you hear someone's in need, you break open your jar. And, and the fragrance of that fills the whole church. You're not only helping your poor brother or sister, you're anointing Jesus' head and his feet because this is his body and these are his members. What you do, Jesus said, for the least of these, my brethren, you do for, you do for me. Now, in verse 33, it seems to shift gears a little bit. And, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And, and great uh, grace was upon them all. Uh, notice the way Luke arranges this. There's, there's a sentence in verse 32 about everybody giving freely to the needy. And then there's a sentence here in verse 33 about preaching and grace. And then after that, there's more about everybody giving freely. Now, if I were Luke's writing coach, I might say, now, Luke, this is, a little, this is a little jumbled up here. Why don't you join the two giving sections together? That's one subject, and then you can put the stuff about preaching and grace somewhere else. That would make a more, more organized uh, paragraph here, Luke. But I think if I said that to Luke, he would say, no, this is, this is, how, this is perfect. Because it is. Why aren't these people in this church in Acts 4, why aren't they ignoring the pain of, of the body? Why is there this extraordinary generosity? Why are the people giving up their stuff? Well, you might say if you're cynical, they must be getting something out of it. And no, it's not what they're getting, it's, what they, it's not what they're giving, it's what they've gotten. And what they've gotten is right there in the middle of, of the two giving sections. The apostles were preaching the resurrection with power and great grace was upon them. And so this verse is like a big tree trunk in the middle. And, and the two verses on the other side are like the leaves and the fruit that the preaching and the grace bear. But you might ask, how does preaching the resurrection factor into any of this? Well, I'll tell you. You've heard it before. You owe God obedience, strict obedience to, to his voice in your thoughts and the things that you say and in the things that you do. And you've not done that a single day of your life. So you were under the condemnation of God's justice and you couldn't do anything about it. You were too poor to pay the debt that you owe. But Jesus Himself, God himself has come in Jesus and he didn't come to collect. He could have come to collect. He didn't come to collect. He came to cancel what you owe and to pay your debt in his blood and to release you forever from the debt that you couldn't ever pay. But how, you might ask, can I be sure that, that judgment still isn't hanging over my head? Well, the answer to that is the tomb is empty. Jesus has risen from the dead. When your debt was paid, sin and death lost their claim on you. Jesus' resurrection is the, is the everlasting sign that God has set you free. Now that message has power. It, it has power that comes with it. The, the, the gospel... Right, I just kind of articulated for you, is, is not just information 
It's, it's not that you hear it and kind of logically work out what it means and then logically work out the correct response. No, God pours out great grace. He pours out his help. He pours out his purification. He pours out his strength through the gospel. So you're not just as you're sitting there gleaning facts. You're eating a meal. You're, you're drinking from a spring. You're, you're breathing clean air. And as that happens, you're getting healthier. The flesh, your flesh is, is dying away. Now, don't get me wrong. Your flesh is still there and it's going to be there until you die. Uh, but this, 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 your flesh is dying away and you're being made healthy as, as time goes on and the preaching continues. That your flesh is still there is why this passage can cut deep. Just the other day, uh, I won't tell you how recently this was. I'll, I'd like to pretend this was a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago. But just the other day, I found that Anne was socking away money, putting away money uh, to give to people. And I got super mad at her. <laughs> I got really mad. I didn't know she was doing it. And she's, here she has this you know, bucket of money that she's, that she's saved. And so I said, you know, Yo, what are you doing? We could use that money. And she said, well, what for? We, we're paying our bills. We're, we're fine. We don't, we, I don't know. I'll figure out something. We, I'll figure out something because we could definitely use that money. Um, and I was so mad. I was really mad. I was mad at her until the next morning when I prayed and tried to tell God about how she was wasting my money and that didn't go over so well. But, but anyway, despite, despite my flesh, despite your flesh, the, the message about Jesus, the gospel preached consistently through that God breathes out his great grace on the entire church. It's kind of counter counterintuitive because when I was a younger preacher, I thought if I want people to be generous, if I want people to be patient, if I want people to be forgiving, then I need to preach sermons on patience and forgiveness and, and, and giving. And when those things come up in a Bible text, I will. But I found that the gospel itself the news about what Jesus has done for you, that's the power of God for salvation. The more you hear it, and not just listen, but the more you hear it, the more fruit you bear. That's why this sentence here is in the middle of these two sentences about giving. Now, in verse 34 and 35, we read, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was not a needy person among them. Not because the poor suddenly became rich. The poor, the poor weren't needy, though, because their needs were being taken care of. This is, this is Deuteronomy 15, verse 4, fulfilled. There will be no poor among you, God has said. And here there's no poor, there's no needy. I will bless you if you obey my, obey my voice, God said. And here you're being blessed. Now, what we read here in Acts chapter 4 was never realized ever in, in Israel or anywhere else. But, but here it is. Because, because the church isn't a human, earthly thing. It's, it's the kingdom of God on, on earth. 
She doesn't always look as pretty as she does here in Acts chapter 4. That's, that's true. There are times when the resemblance is slight, when she's encrusted by sin and, and selfishness. But what we're reading here is her true character with the varnish knocked off, or the tarnish knocked off. This is what you'd see. This is a foretaste of the everlasting beauty that's going to be coming. Because Jesus has cleansed her and he's clothed her and he's made her his own. But still, you might say, we don't obey his voice strictly and and give as we ought to give. No, you don't. But they don't either. You're going to see that next week in chapter 5. Wasn't God's blessing conditional? If you obey my voice strictly, then this blessing will come? Yes. But whose body is the church? Jesus has obeyed the voice of the Lord strictly. Jesus was broken open. He poured out his life, his blood, for needy sinners. The the fragrance of his sacrifice fills the earth. You and I reap the, the blessing that comes from his work. And one of those blessings is that God cares for the poor through his church. Now, back in the period after Joshua and the judges and and through the reign of kings, each Israelite had land apportioned to him through his clan, and that that was done by God. God apportioned the land. But after Israel returned from exile in Babylon, that system never really recovered. So by this time, in the first century, only a tiny, tiny portion of a very wealthy minority owned owned land. Um, The homes that are being given up here are probably owned also by very wealthy people who have other homes. This probably isn't people who have only one home, poor people giving up their home and being homeless. This is supposed to be people who have probably more than one, one place. But even so, if these are, these are very wealthy people giving, giving their things up, can you, can you imagine doing this? If you, if you own land or if you own a house on the coast and Good Shepherd runs out of resources to help her poor, uh, are you going to sell, sell your house? going to sell your land? That's what's happening here. As there's need, the wealthy sell their their possessions, and everyone who needs food or shelter or clothing has it. That's hard to even contemplate doing, because I don't know what tomorrow holds. The economy's pretty bad right now, and prices are way high, and they're maybe getting higher, I don't know. Uh, is, Is this level of generosity even responsible? Well, you do need to take care of your family. Paul writes that in, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. If anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith. That's pretty strong language. That said, writing to the Corinthians, this is the second letter of the Corinthians, about a collection that he was going to take for the poor, poor Christians, Paul writes, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. 
you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, give $10 and God's going to give you $100 back. That's not what is being said here. But it is a promise that God is going to take care of you. That when you pour out your belongings to help people, you're not losing anything. Do you think Mary lost anything when she anointed Jesus' head and his, and his feet? I mean, she'd already gained the whole world in Christ and the salvation of her soul and the life of her brother back. What's, what's $30,000 compared to that? And, and you don't need to doubt, because of the, what we just read in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians, you don't need to doubt that God also took care of her, her worldly needs too. So these men and, and women trust God and sell their belongings and, and lay the proceeds at the apostles' feet. And the apostles attribute or distribute the resources to those who need them. Uh, most churches still do it this way. People give to the church and the church distributes. Um, it's a really good system because if you, if you come on hard times and you can't afford to buy groceries or you can't afford to pay, pay your rent, you might be embarrassed to make that public. Hey, can anyone help me? You might be embarrassed to go up to somebody personally and say, hey, can you give me a, a few bucks? Uh, well, you don't have to do that. Just come to me or come to John or come to someone on the vestry and we'll distribute as, as, as there's need. Now, during this time, as this all was going on, Joseph, this is verse 36, who is called, also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, Barnabas is Mark's cousin. Mark is the writer, the gospel writer, Mark. Barnabas is Mark's cousin. Uh, Barnabas' sister, uh, Mark's mother, Mary, that's her name, lives in Jerusalem, and her house is probably where the 120 originally gathered before Pentecost and afterwards. Uh, Barnabas is from, is from Cyprus, we're told, which is going to be a big help later on during Paul's missionary journeys. But for now, he seems to be living in, in Jerusalem. His name is, is Joseph, not Barnabas. Barnabas is his nickname given by the apostles, and it, it's a fitting nickname. He's one of those people who sees things, or sees us through Acts. Uh, one preacher I was listening to said that Barnabas, if he, was in, if he were in your congregation, he would be the guy who, who sees sadness in your eyes or loneliness and comes to sit next to you. He'd be the guy who notices when you've missed a few Sundays and, and calls to see if you're okay. He doesn't tell you things are fine when they're not fine, but he's the guy who helps you see that there's hope when you can't see any hope. He doesn't puff you up, but he knows what you do well, and he sees when you do it, and he tells you so. When you've sinned in some deep way, and everyone knows it, Barnabas is the guy who's going to come after you and bring you, and bring you back. That's Barnabas. But I don't think his nickname just refers to his character. Barnabas, Luke tells us, is a Levite. That is, he's a descendant of Jacob's son, Levi. God gave Levites the privilege of caring for the tabernacle and then later the temple. They enjoy elevated status. Barnabas, probably more so, he's a, he's a wealthy Levite, he's a landowner. He, 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 he sells a field and lays the proceeds at the apostles' feet. 
Barnabas is, is the first recorded Levite to believe in Jesus. The temple establishment that the priests and the Levites have thus far rejected the gospel. But now suddenly, Joseph the Levite believes and, and brings an offering. That's encouraging. But there's even more to it. In Malachi chapter 3, you're familiar with this prophecy, but, but hang on because it's going to get unfamiliar in a minute. In Malachi chapter 3, God says, Behold, I send my messenger before me. He'll prepare the way, and the Lord whom you seek, speaking about himself, God speaking about himself, will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's Soap. Like I said, you've heard that before. You know John the Baptist is the messenger who came before the Lord. And the Lord whom you seek, that's God himself, comes suddenly to his temple when no one expects it. He comes like fire and fuller soap with a whip of cords, turning over tables, and with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Uh, the prophecy is all about Jesus' coming. He's fulfilled it. And he's the new priest, he's the new temple, he's the new sacrifice, he's the one final sacrifice. But after saying that, God goes on. He, the Lord, will sit as a refiner and purifier of, purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now, just in case the apostles or any of the others were wondering after Peter and John's arrest, is the Lord really in control of this thing? Along comes Joseph the Levite, his heart refined and purified by the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ, and he brings an offering in righteousness, and he lays it at the apostles' feet. He gives it to the Lord. So everyone's encouraged by that. That's one reason I think they name him the son of encouragement. They're going to need that encouragement and they're going to need him because uh, the church, threatened by the Sanhedrin from without, is about to face its first threat from within, which we'll look at next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gathering. We thank you for the church, for binding us together as one. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you will help us not to ignore um, pain in our midst, whether it's from poverty or some other reason. I thank you for the grace you've poured out in this church and the way that you do care for those who have needs here. Uh, we ask you, Lord, to uh, help us to trust you um, enough to give uh, for those who need help and trust your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.